In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast. If you enjoy and benefit from this podcast, and we certainly hope you do, then please support this show by supporting our sponsor, Anderson Hauser. Anderson Hauser is a global leader in process automation and measurement instrumentation. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the show by going to our website, cx.endress.com forward slash HSE dash podcast and register for our monthly giveaway. And we'll post that link in the show notes. So today's show is specifically about what our theme is as we come on every week. And that is about how one mistake can keep somebody from, from coming home safely. And so I have as my guest today, Drew Hinton with Aero Safety. Drew, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show, Russell. Okay, so Drew, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about Aero Safety first. Sure. So again, my name is Drew Hinton. I'm the president and CEO of Aero Safety. And Aero Safety, we're a, a safety consulting firm based out of Glasgow, Kentucky. It's right about halfway between Louisville, Kentucky, and Nashville, Tennessee. And we really specialize in anything from regulatory compliance training to written programs and creating policies and procedures, audits, inspections, and everywhere in between. And kind of where my background comes from is I've been doing this. I've been had my own business with AeroSafety for a little over a year now. Prior to this, I've served in, in several different senior level executive roles within safety. I've served as a global safety manager for a large chemical manufacturer, I've served as corporate director of safety. And then my prior career was actually in the fire department. So I had a 10-year career as a firefighter EMT hazmat officer in Louisville, Kentucky. And so a lot of that experience from the first responder side actually played over into my safety realm now. So it kind of works really well hand in hand. And then I got, I've got my degree. So I kind of got, you know, a lot of, a lot of different aspects that I try to mesh in between so we can help create our, the ideal environment for our customers. Actually, I have interviewed more than one former firefighter or, or someone in the fire department business or whatever who transitions into safety. The As you said, the two seem to go hand in hand. So, Drew, you're in Kentucky. Of course, everybody knows I'm down here in or, or actually near Houston, Texas. So, you and I have never met before, although I don't know why I just said that. Of This is now marks one year that I've been doing these podcasts remotely. So I think about 99% of the people I've interviewed over the last year, I've never met. <laughs> that's definitely that's definitely one of the things that this COVID pandemic has changed. I hope we are able to get back to it soon, but used to the way these podcasts went, we would go to some kind of safety seminar or, or conference or something like that. And, and I right. would uh, set up a booth and I would interview a lot of times the keynote speakers at these, these things. And, you know, we always had face-to-face -face contact, but so the way I met you was actually via LinkedIn, even though you don't particularly have at this time, a lot of oil and gas clients, although maybe hopefully after this podcast, you will, you 
posted something on LinkedIn, and of course, it doesn't matter what industry. I mean, health and safety and the environment, especially safety, things overlap no matter what industry that you're in. But you you posted an article on LinkedIn about the, how should I say this, the characterization of what we call near-miss incidents or something like that. Anyway, I I found the article very well-written and informative. And, you know, for those who might not have caught it on LinkedIn, I wanted to share it on this podcast. So let's talk about that, Drew. Sure. Yeah. Like like you said, I posted, it was about a week ago. I posted a question just to ask the general audience and from different industries and different you know, walks of life, what do they classify as, you know, I'm using air quotes here, a close call. And so I've, you know, put that I've, I've heard people use the term near miss. I've heard t- people use near hit. I've even, you know, through that discussion that was generated, people were saying they called it near loss. And so there's a lot of different terminology that was used for that. And so I was trying to fact figure out what term do you use and why, but also what part of that really gets into the investigation process. Are you investigating those near misses, close calls, near loss, whatever you want to call that? You know, do you classify it as, as such? And then do you investigate it, you know, accordingly? And it was actually actually really interesting to find out, you know, what some people were, were you know, providing feedback on. Like I said, some people were commenting and saying that, you know, we call it a near loss, which that, you know, in my opinion, that kind of gets into the the insurance terminology of, of what a loss is. So that kind of branches out of, not only just the human aspect of it, but also property and equipment damage as well. And so, I mean, it it developed a lot of of really good discussion, a lot of good feedback. And then what I actually, I learned something from this article about the true origin of where near miss came from. And tell us about that. Sure. And so I've always called it close call, but I was talking to one of the, one of my connections on LinkedIn and he was telling me it came from the Navy he wasn't sure, you know, where the source was and where to actually find what it is. But he had, he was a former military person. And so I kind of did some research on it and actually found out that, you know, the Navy, when they would, when they would you know, launch missiles, bombs, when they were doing that, they were huge on record keeping. And so it would either be a hit or a miss. And so where the term near miss came from is back in World War II, they would have a bomb that exploded in the water close enough to the ship to where it, it didn't hit it, but it was close enough to the ship that it still caused enough damage to the hull of the ship. And so that's, you know, originated way back, way back when that's kind of where that came from. And I thought that was pretty interesting because you kind of get, even if you look at different organizations and different, in different websites, you might find different definitions. And so like, if you, for example, you look at the national safety council, they define, you know, they call it a near miss and they call it an unplanned event that almost results in a fatality injury or property damage event. So there's something in that chain of events that occurred that prevented it from being worse. And so I thought it was interesting that going back to the world war II era, and that's where it came from is they wanted to say, okay, it wasn't necessarily a hit, but it was close enough to where it still caused damage. And so that I think, in, in my opinion, I think that's where from one individual to the next, you start getting a little bit of variation in, in the definition. So does it have to cause damage? Does it just, you know, maybe it's just something that, you know, fell off. Somebody kicked something off while working in a scissor lift. They kick something off and it almost hit somebody. Is that a near miss or does it actually have to hit them? So that, you know, that brings a whole, a whole different level of discussion there. But I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting that, you know, looking at the true roots of where that term came from. 
But, you know, the fact that they classified the near miss as, yeah, we didn't hit it, but there was still some damage done. I think that's a very important point. Sometimes, you know, we have that near miss. And so we kind of wipe our brow with the back of our hand and we go, whoo, you know, that was that right. was a, that was a close call and there was no damage done. But there really is damage done because you keep doing that and eventually there's going to be a significant incident that happens. And so rather than just, you know, wiping the back of your brow and saying, wow, you know, that was close, it ought to get your attention. You ought to recognize, you know, just just because we we didn't have a, a loss, for example, there's damage here. There's something that needs to be done. The term near loss, as you talked about it from an insurance standpoint, you know, damage to property and equipment, I think that's certainly an important point. And in fact, I just interviewed somebody the other day. His big deal was safety and design, paying attention to and understanding the safety features of your equipment. But for me, the big thing is always about people. And sometimes I think we worry more about property damage. And even as much as I'm an advocate for the environment and I'm a huge proponent of defending this industry in the way that we do clean up our messes and prevent a lot of our messes. But when we do have a big mess, of course, it, you know, makes national headlines and all that sort of thing. Sure. You know, like the BP incident, for example. I mean, if you ask people about the BP incident, what's the first thing they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about all the oil that was spilled out in the Gulf of Mexico. When I think about the BP incident, the first thing I think about are those 11 souls that were lost on the platform. Absolutely. And that's why understanding and, and trying to avoid near misses is is the most important thing. Absolutely. Completely agree. I think there's kind of two issues that I see with not understanding the significance of it, kind of like you just said. And so one, one issue that I've seen is not exclusively, but it's a lot of times you'll see with newer safety professionals, they get hung up on the Heinrichs accident triangle or the domino theory, whatever you want to call that. And so kind of in a, in a nutshell, it's, you know, for every group of 330 accidents, the theory states that there will be 300 incidents that will result in no injuries, 29 that will result in minor in, or insignificant injuries, and then one major injury or fatality. And so people think that that's just a flat out, completely straightforward equation that, okay, I've, I've met my 300 you know, close calls, near misses, whatever you want to call it. Now that we're going to start seeing a lot of injuries or fatality, and that's kind of missing the point. The point of the Heinrich theory or the, the domino theory is that there are a lot of precursors that we can we can catch that we we're missing. We're not investigating. We're not looking really into those those 300 results that resulted in no injuries. We need to be focusing on that to prevent those more significant ones from even occurring in the first place. And then kind of the second one that I see is the lack of psychological safety in the workplace. So people were, you know, maybe a, a near miss did occur, something, whether it's, you know, involving a, a person, equipment, property, whatever it may be, maybe that did occur, but they're not, you know, encouraged. They don't feel open enough to express what happened without fear of getting, okay, I'm going to lose my safety incentive. So that's, you know, I've seen a lot of cases of, they put safety incentives that go against the OSHA, OSHA guidelines and they discourage reporting. I personally investigated incidents at companies and the first thing they say was, 
am I going to lose my bonus? <laughs> so we want to get completely away from that. But you want to, that psychological safety is is crucial that a lot of people don't don't really focus on, in my opinion. You know, regardless of the experience. I mean, I've got 15 years of safety experience, and I've you know, there's things that I'm I'm still improving on today. And so that you know, not to say that I'm I'm perfect because there's always there's always room for improvement. But we need to recognize that the psychological safety is an aspect that needs to be worked on as well. Well, let's talk about that. What do you think is the best way to incentivize safety? So it it all starts with getting the employees engaged and involved, and and truly doing it from you know a caring standpoint. You know, there are some there are some OSHA standards that specifically say you have to get them involved. Now, sure, if you get into the I, ISO standards or if you want to become a VPP site, you know that's that's required as well. But like I'll give you an example. My kind of background in my in my area is, is confined spaces. So within the confined space standard 1910-146, it specifically requires that in all you receive, you as an employer, gain input from the affected employees on your program. And a lot of people don't, you know, they don't really focus on that or they don't even know that's a requirement of that standard. And so if I'm doing a confined space program and I'm, you know, I've got my employees are going out to go work in a, a silo or a chemical tank, whatever it may be. And I'm trying to arrange the rescue services. Are they comfortable with those, with those rescue services? Are they comfortable with, you know, either we're doing it in house or we're relying on a third party. So getting their feedback and letting them know that, yes, we're not doing this just to check the box. We're doing this because we want to make sure you're going home to your family. I know that sounds kind of cliche and a lot of us say that, but that's, that's what you need to do. If they see that, okay, you're just here to check the box, you're just here to do an audit to make it look like you're busy, that's one thing. The other, you know, if you're going out there to just act like a, you know, a safety cop and just try to find what's what's wrong, you know, that's going to just completely eliminate your your credibility. And so you go out there. I always try to find everything as, as a teaching moment. If it's you know, if somebody's getting, you know, an incident, it's incident occurs. Most people when they hear the term disciplinary disciplinary action. They immediately think of I'm getting wrote up, I'm getting sent home, I'm getting suspended, whatever, whatever it may be. But discipline means to teach or to coach. And so that's what I try to do everything. Maybe it does result in a write-up, a disciplinary write-up from, you know, not following the policies. But my main concern is not that write-up. My main concern is figuring out where did we go wrong? And I, I express with the individual, okay, let's let's sit down. What could you as an individual done? To help out, but also what can we as an employer do to make things better? Because it's not always going to be 100% the employee's fault. And I've, you know, I've, I've worked at companies directly, and I've, I've been employed as a consultant for companies that their first word out of the management's mouth is, "What did he or she do?" Well, that's not the case. You know, a lot of times, and I say a lot of times, but several times, there are cases where, okay, the company policy was not very clear, and because that written program was not clear and precise on what your expectations were. You improperly trained your employees on on that, and there was you know there are some gray areas or, or loopholes they can get around. Sometimes it goes back to doing policies. Sometimes it is training. I'm not I'm not huge on doing training as a, as a remedial action. Sure, it, to me it's more of a check the box thing. But usually, most of the times I see some things are they're more deeper than just okay they need to go through training. And it's seeing is is there a you know, problem with the you know the written program? Is there a problem with you know, the enforcement side of things. But once they, again, once they kind of get start seeing that, okay, you're doing this because you, you really want to improve the workplace. You're not doing this to check the box. You're asking for our input and we're seeing that our input is actually being put into place. 
and it's going to go a long way. Oh, I think you have absolutely hit the nail on the head. And we've said this repeatedly on this HSE podcast, the check in the box thing and the safety cop. Those are things that I, if you want a strong safety culture, those are the two things you you have to avoid. And, you know, when you're talking about safety incidents, really, when you, you, you could apply this to all aspects of, of life and relationships and that sort of thing. But when people are always trying to point the finger at somebody else, I call it playing the blame game. What I tell people, when you play the blame game, it always ends in a tie. Nobody ever wins when you play the blame game. And I'm reminded of the famous college football coach, Paul Bear Bryant, they asked him about a tie one time. He said, a tie is like kissing your sister. You don't get nothing out of it. So. <laughs> I completely agree. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's funny. I haven't heard that one. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, and like I said, the, you know, the blame game doesn't work whether you're talking about trying to fix a safety issue or, or any other kind of relationship at work or even, you know, relationship among your own interpersonal type relationships and everything. So Arrow's been in business for about a year now. You Correct. Are you regional or are you all across the United States or international or what's your territory? We're all across the United States. I mean, we've we kind of try to stay regional just so that we can, you know, get, you know, easier access to the companies and, and be there in a, on a quick time frame. But we've went anywhere from, from Michigan and Wisconsin down to Texas and Florida. And, and, you know, we go, we go everywhere. And then we also partner with a couple other, a couple other firms across the country. So that if we can't get to it or it's more of a specialized niche, we can certainly outsource that to make sure we have a solution for you. Well, we'll put your website in the show notes. We'll put your LinkedIn URL also there so that anybody who wants to can contact you. If people are on LinkedIn, they might want to look at your post and look at all that feedback and everything that came out. I thought it was very interesting. I thought it would make for a a good podcast subject. And so I thank you for taking your time to come on. Before we close this thing out, since you have had all this experience in safety and whatnot, and you know, you're talking about going out and making sure people had the the right psychological process or concepts about this. And we're not just out here trying to be the cop or we're not just out here trying to, to check the box or these, these aren't formalities. This is, this is really about you coming home safe. I find that a lot of times you can, you can get people's attention with a, a good example of, you know, here's a tragedy that can happen if you, you know, if, if you don't have the right attitude and aptitude about all this stuff, does one, Maybe like incident like that particularly stick out in your mind? Yeah. One that sticks out in my mind is work worked for a company. And actually about a couple months before I worked for the company, they had a pretty severe incident. Thankfully, no fatalities. But they had a couple of employees working on a scissor lift, doing some things they weren't supposed to be doing. And it got back to a couple of issues of they didn't want to speak up on behalf of the host facility, they were, they were contractors at another facility. So they didn't want to speak up about the hosts, the host employers safety policies. So long story short is they had two people working on a scissor lift in tandem, kind of lifting some steel beams up, not, <laughs> not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Both scissor lifts ended up getting knocked over from 20, 25 feet up in the air. One person was, was tied in. 
one was not tied into that situation or into, into the scissor lift. The person that was not tied in actually got, when it tipped over, got close to the ground. And as it got close to the ground, jumped out and pretty much came out unscathed. I mean, a few scratches and bruises, but that's it. Um, the person that was tied in, you know, rode it out the whole way down and ended up with several broken bones and, you know, had to have a lot of, you know, surgeries and a lot of rehab for six, six, eight months before he was able to get back to work. And so what that really brought up made me see is like that was my first week on the job. I had to go, you know, do you know, damage control and start putting out fires from that one. But was going to the going to the site, going and talking to the employees to say, look, I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not here to put anybody in the corner. I'm at that point, I'm I'm like, I'm the new guy. <laughs> I've been on the job like two days and investigating that. And I said, you know, I'm not here to point fingers, but I'm not here to, to put you in the corner. Just tell me what went wrong so we can come up with a, a, a solution together. And so, you know, once you know OSHA was involved, but once they see that, okay, you're not here to put me in the corner. You're not here just to write me up. You're here to figure out what we can do better next time and keep that from happening again. And, you know, there was a, another individual was in another country, but this kind of just goes to show the variance in culture from country to country. It was somebody said, I want to say it was a country or some part over in Africa or in the Middle East somewhere, but they made a post that said, if basically if the employees don't, if the employees like you as a safety person, then you're not doing your job. And I was like, that's not true. Make sure there, there are some, there are some people that are, they, let's be honest, they simply won't like you because you are the safety person because of that negative mentality some people have. But there are a lot more people that I've had that like me because I am open. I've come to them. I say, okay, let's, let's just be honest. One, one-on-one honest with each other. I want to help you and you help me and let's figure this out. And so once, you know, but kind of the moral of that story is, okay, this person was tied off. This person was not And they, you know, the post incident question was, you know, did being tied off to that thing have a, you know, have a factor, bear it, bear it factor on that incident being so severe, you know, the person that was tied off like they're supposed to got hurt worse than the person was not. And so I kind of use that as, you know, a kind of a, a, you know, breaking point for conversation starter with figuring out, okay, there may be some ways that we can potentially work around, but you know, as long as we're being compliant with the standards, but if there is a way that's either going to cause more severe injury or that you don't think is compliant or whatever it may be, let's work together. Let's let's make a solution together and figure out how we can move forward. Well, and in that case, it sounds like maybe he might have been doing the compliant thing by being tied off, but they were doing some other things that weren't compliant. Yeah, absolutely. Created, that's what that's <laughs> what created that's what created that problem. Well, anyway, I agree with you completely. This is the challenge to HSE professionals is you've got to get you've got to get people on your side and you've got to get them to believe that you're on their side. That's to me, that's that's the key to it all. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, that's the message for today. And I think it's an important message. And I want to thank everyone again for listening today. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Anderson Hauser is your reliable U.S.-based partner for measurement instrumentation, services, and solutions. We are your people for process automation. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you can discover more about Anderson Hauser at our website, which we'll post in the show notes, and you can register for our monthly giveaway there. Also, we'll post in the show notes how you can follow Anderson Hauser on LinkedIn and also on Twitter. And as I mentioned, you can also find in the show notes the LinkedIn URL for Drew. And thanks again, Drew, for coming on the show. Thank you. 
everyone, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about us. And let's talk next time. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for April 2021. This month, we have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the Spring Pitch Party focused on clean tech. It'll be hosted at the Canon on April 6th. Next, we have our two online events, the University of Houston PES Career Fair on April 8th and the CSPG GeoWomen eTalk on April 20th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information about any of the live streams or events we have coming up. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for April. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.